You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by biologist, conservation biologist, and ornithologist Luke Block from the Department of Integrated Biology and the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology here on campus. Thank you for coming in, Luke. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Uh, you're not the first person from the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology and not even the first person who works primarily in Indonesia, but uh, you do different things, and I, I think it's going to be a really exciting episode. I think so, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, ornithologists, we should start there, right? That's birds. Yep. Has it always been birds? Have you you've just been sitting on the beach looking at seagulls your entire life? Or? Pretty much. Uh, not the beach so much. Um, but yeah, I've, I mean... Always liked animals for sure, and then somehow, I don't even really remember the transition, but around 11, the age of 11, like fifth grade, I just sort of transitioned into being a diehard bird watcher, and that's when the life list started, which is where you tick off every new species you see, and it makes you much more of a active bird watcher. So lifeless. Lifeless, yeah. yeah. So that's a real thing. That's a it's a real thing that serious bird watchers have. So <laughs> they have this lifeless. So if they see a new bird they've never seen before, then they go, ooh, it's a lifer. So you'll hear that all the time among the bird nerd people. Okay, so a life list. How many possible birds could you see in your lifetime? Like what? It, what is the highest number that you've heard of someone counting? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't actually know the answer to that. I know there's about 10,000 species on Earth. So if you devoted your life to it, you could potentially see around 10,000 species of birds. So where are you at in this list? I stopped counting a while ago, and I've been more into the biology side than the counting, and I, I need to update it, especially after working in Indonesia. There's been a, a huge number of birds, and probably somewhere around 2,000, 3,000 yeah. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, what about in California? Do you have a sense of how many different kind of birds there are in this state? I think you can see California is huge and it's very biodiverse and we have all these different environments. So you can see a lot of birds here and there's a lot of rare things that end up here. So I think the list in California is actually really high. It's something like 400, over 400 species of birds have been seen in California. But that's counting something that got lost from Europe and ended up here in the winter and probably died because it never migrated back to its home. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. lots of birds. In lots general. of birds, even that are resident or migrating through. It's a super biodiverse, really. It's a great place for birding. So, And if you think <clears> about <throat> it, I mean, people study a lot of different taxa, you know, different kinds of animals. But birds are nice because you can go to any, can you go to any continent and see birds? Yeah. They are all over the globe. They're up even in the the spring and summer, they're up in the Arctic Pole. You get a lot of gulls and things like that, and elsids, these diving seabirds are up there. And and then we all know in Antarctica there's penguins that have colonized. So birds have pretty much taken over the earth. They've done very, very well. So yeah. they're a fun group, and uh, you, know, you can study them anywhere. So do you have, like, a favorite bird fact that you like to tell people, like a weird trivia about birds? There's so many different kinds of birds. Really, there could be infinite number of facts. But I mean, I would just so, for example, I was just at a talk earlier about the uh, evolution of olfaction, so smelling, and how it might be related to navigation. And so we were mm. talking about birds. And there was a study where, you know, they uh, changed some of the neural pathways in the birds and then they could not navigate this as well because um, they were limited in their sense of smell. But anyway, the point is. They can go really long distances. They know where they've been. They migrate. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, migration in general is totally ununderstood. <laughs> I mean, it's a hot topic still to this day. It's been being studied probably since the 1800s, but we still, olfaction is part of it. There's still people who think maybe star navigation is part of it. Um, but in general, birds have pretty bad olfactory sense. There's a few that have evolved to have very good olfactory sense. The turkey vulture that we see floating around in the skies here in California all year um, is one of the best-smelling birds. So you can bury meat underneath the canopy of the rainforest down on the ground, and they will be able to smell it from up above the canopy while they're soaring and then go down and find the meat. And, wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Which is rare because most birds don't smell, really. Yeah. It's not an important sense to them. <clears throat> well, what so what about birds are you particularly fascinated with? So I have I've done all sorts of work over the years with birds, and now I would say I'm very interested in the rapid diversification of birds in islands. And I work in Indonesia now, which is an apt place to do that sort of work. So I'm really interested in these what we call young radiations, so these groups of birds that have diversified and um, turned into many different species. And how, how does that happen? And why do some birds, you know, go crazy and turn into a bunch of different species, whereas there, there are other groups of birds that will just sort of slowly evolve and they don't seem to radiate or turn into as many species. So. so I've had other people on the show who talk about islands and diversification of groups. And a lot of them actually been talking about spiders or mm-hmm. plants and things that can't move as far as quickly. But is it the same general idea that, you know, islands are sort of hot spots for these groups to become very different rather quickly? Yeah, I mean, islands are great. They're, as I think it's been said many times, they're these natural laboratories because you can, you know, things can go there and they're encapsulated and they have the very discrete landmass. The ocean surrounds them. But birds can fly, and so there's a tricky <laughs> tricky sort of relationship there of dispersibility. So things that can't disperse at all, you know, tend to get stuck on an island and will never go anywhere. Things that are moderately able to disperse seem to turn into a lot of different things. And then things that are very good at getting from island to island tend to not change much because they can get between islands and exchange. Uh, they can breed with each other, and thus they never really change. And so... The sort of the sweet spot for diversification, it seems, where you've got to have some sort of mid-level of being able to get from island to island or place to place if you want to really become one of these super speciating groups of birds. So, so do you think I would be wrong in saying that maybe that Darwin's finches are some of the most famous birds in science? I would say so. And they're also on islands, right? They Can you are just on islands, tell us, yeah. a, like, in one or two sentences, who who Darwin's finches are? <laughs> so Darwin, Darwin, you know, he's a pretty important guy in biology. Yeah, uh... <laughs> and uh, he did the little, he took the Beagle, this boat, uh, the HMS Beagle around the world. He got this free trip to go sail around the world. And basically, he wasn't even the naturalist on board. He was just the assistant to the captain. He got to keep the captain company because he was of the socioeconomic class that could associate with the captain. But while he was doing this, he also was collecting animals and fossils. And he eventually ended up on the Galapagos Islands. And it was actually the mockingbirds there that some mm. other ornithologists said, hey, these are all very different and from island to island. And he said, really? Interesting. And then they started looking at the finches and also realized that these finches are all very different. And so the Galapagos are great because they're very isolated. They're far from the mainland. So at some point, some group of finchy things got blown out there probably and then turned into something very different from the ancestor. And then as more islands popped up volcanically, they would spread to new islands and turn into new birds. And so because of that, they're very famous 
examples of what we call an adaptive radiation. So this group of birds, something went out there and then changed very quickly and learned to take advantage of all the different habitats on the islands. And so there's some that are up in the forest. There are some down on the lava rocks, actually drawing blood from sea iguanas and drinking the blood, vampire finches. And then there's some that mm. just eat seeds and have different size bills to eat different size seeds. And so they've just basically taken advantage of all these different environments on the Galapagos. And you, you've done some work in Ecuador, actually, haven't you? I have, but not on the Galapagos. I, uh, I managed a small biological reserve up in the west side of the Andes near a little mountain town called Mindo. <laughs> Okay, so you're, and so in terms of graduate students, you know, I don't, I don't want to out you here, but you, you came in a, a little bit older than some right. of the other students, and that's because you've had so many other experiences. Do you are, are a couple of those would you, what you would consider to be the most informative in your life, or the things that brought you to graduate school? For sure, yeah. I mean, I was given, I think, actually at a very young age, I was. My father and I saved some money, and we actually went to Costa Rica, and uh, that was during high school. And I was already a hardcore bird watcher, and I wanted to go there to look at birds and see as many birds as I could. And the second I saw the tropics, I said, this is, you know, North America's cool. I love the birds up there, but I'm going to be a tropical biologist, and this is my this is my thing. And I fell in love with the tropics. And so that's where all of most of my work has taken me. And so... After graduating in, uh, from uh, my undergraduate degree at University of Montana, I uh, was afforded a job in Venezuela, of all places, and so it allowed me to continue my work in the tropics, and that was a pretty <laughs> fun and informative job because I learned about hardcore, long-term field research of you know being out there for a long period of time, day in and day out, very little time off just working in the rainforest. This is actually cloud forest, so higher elevation forest. And um, it taught me a lot of the field skills and also it really refined what I was interested in, what I wasn't interested in. And so it was a really good experience and free travel to Venezuela. Yeah, <laughs> you still work in the field quite a bit, don't you? I do, yeah. I'm uh, I've, I'm in and out of Indonesia quite quite a bit still, so just okay. about every summer at least, so. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on CalEx. My name is Tesla. Today I'm joined by Luke Block from the Department of Integrated Biology, talking about some of his work on birds, uh, lifelong passion for birds. And, okay, I'm going to ask you a personal question, mm-hmm. only because I know you, uh, and I think it might be interesting, but if, if you decide you don't want to answer it. Anyway, so you are colorblind. I am indeed. Which is common in, in men, actually. Yep. And More so common, yeah. what... Which colors uh, can you not see? I am I, uh, traditionally red-green colorblind, so my uh, M1 photoreceptor is all messed up. So I'm what we now call a moderate to severe duton. So I have this confusion zone of between reds and greens that are very, very similar and hard for me to distinguish. So I only ask because, you know, when we think about <clears throat> birds, a lot of what we think about are the feathers, right, and how colorful they are and how they look different. So I was just wondering how, you know, being colorblind has affected bird watching and your passion for birds? Uh, I think it's maybe enhanced it. And oddly, many of the field ornithologists I have worked with in the past have also been colorblind. So it's pretty common for ornithologists to be colorblind. And And what's interesting is you don't actually need to see color all that well to distinguish individuals or different species even because there's so many other features of birds, which is partly why they're so fun to study. That allow you to identify them. They all sing often or will have calls, so you can distinguish them that way, or they'll have unique field marks. And so 
I'm actually teaching a course now on campus, IB 104, Natural History of the Vertebrates, and we teach our students how to identify birds and all the other vertebrates as well, but often they'll, they'll try to use color. They'll focus almost too much on color, which can vary a lot, and I tell them I'm colorblind, and it's a useful teaching technique because it makes them realize how unimportant it is to actually only focus on color because there's so many other features of different species of birds that often allow you to distinguish between them. And so despite being colorblind, it seems like it would be an impairment. It's really not hindered my ability to study birds or, you know, anything. The hardest part about being colorblind was <laughs> organic chemistry where they used red and green for all the molecules. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. That's a, I mean, it's really interesting because... I, you know, as someone who's, who sees all the colors, I don't, just like the students, I don't know if I would realize that you can focus on some of these other features. So mm -hmm. besides calls, or is call what you mostly focus on? Uh, it's part of it. I do a lot of audio birding, um, uh, which is when you use just, you can identify what's out in the forest by listening. I do that in, in everywhere I've ever worked, North America, South America, and Indonesia. But also, like I was mentioning, there's field marks, we call them. So, like, maybe a, a white stripe above the eye or a streaky back or, you know, longer, shorter legs, different bill lengths. Um, and even how they fly, the behavior of things can be very different. There's certain birds that look almost identical. They've converged to look very similar, but because they're actually very different of different lineages of birds, they act very different and do very different things while you see them, and they'll fly differently. And, and I've been just never been able to see colors, so I've always just focused on these things. And so I have a whole suite of different traits that I can pull from that allow me to identify the different species even without color. And I still see color, just yeah. less of it. I see about 10,000 variations of color, whereas you see about a million. So, so, less. so slightly less. Slightly <laughs> yeah. less. Okay, well, uh, so you mentioned that you're in and out of Indonesia these uh, these years, these mm -hmm. days. So what exactly are you doing in Indonesia, and what what is that like? As someone who's never been to Southeast Asia, can you tell me a little bit about what it's like working there? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun place to work. It's fantastic. It's quite the adventure. And uh, it's the place where Alfred, Wasser, Alfred Russell Wallace worked, which is sort of the contemporary of Darwin, and he was my hero more than Darwin ever was for many reasons. But... Uh, Working in Indonesia has been great and fun. There's a, a lot of logistical difficulties of working in a place like Indonesia. Just getting the permits alone can take us weeks. <laughs> Is that permits to go there or permits to take things from there? Permits to even just do the research if you want to stay above board and do things legal, which we like to do, and not offend anybody there and work with the Indonesians. And so, you know, we're collaborating with them and so we do everything above board and get the permits and that alone takes a lot of work and but once you get out there into the field it's still that's not the end of the <laughs> adventure you know we're taking often boats around to islands because some of them you just can't get to from by planes there's no airports and so you're on these old rickety ferries that are probably older than they should be and maybe not ocean worthy but that's the only way to get to some of these islands and even some of the planes aren't super <laughs> reliable looking. So that part is uh, pretty crazy. And then right now I, we're focused on this island called Sulawesi. So once you get to Sulawesi, where we work are the mountains. And you can, you can unfold a map to Indonesia and look at Sulawesi and there will be roads going to places. And then you'll get there and the road doesn't exist. And so a lot of what we do is we have to scout these places um, and then... <laughs> 
recruit a bunch of land cruisers, which will just get you to a village. And from the village, you actually then have to hire porters. So you have to assemble a whole team of locals who you have to convince it's worth it to them to carry all of this heavy scientific equipment up a mountain in the rain, in the mud. And sometimes that works really well. And then sometimes they say, we'd rather harvest coffee because that pays about the same as carrying your things. And so there's all of that part of it, which is, you know, that sounds like work and can be unpleasant. But once you're out there, it can be, it's just a really amazing opportunity. It's a, it's a very different life than our, the side of our graduate life where we're in a lab studying genetics. Because out there, you're, we're living in a tent. I wake up with the sun or before the sun and then, you know, prep specimens and after the sun goes down and then kind of start again and go out there. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's very trying and exhausting, but, I mean, we wouldn't all do it if it wasn't something that, you know, was actually partly fun too. And so I think it, it gets back to that part of biology that I think pretty much everybody that comes in here would say is really attractive to about biology, which is the sense of discovery and kind of getting out there and finding new things and seeing new places and having wild new experiences. And that's what makes all of it really a lot of fun. And so despite the, the mud and the rain and the having wet tents and never really being dry, it still somehow all works out. <laughs> so actually, as you were describing, you know, these porters and climbing up in the mud, carrying equipment, that image to me was not that much different than you might have of an image from like a hundred years ago, actually, of scientists, you know, going in remote places with people helping them carry. But you must have some updated equipment that goes into the field with you, right? What's the, oh, yeah. what, what kind of equipment are you using out there? Um, so we have GPS. Alfred Russell Wallace did not have GPS. He had nothing like that. Um, so it's a perfect blend of this traditional old, old school science we think of, of going up rivers and yeah, having porters and the mud. And, but then at the same time, we have GPS. So we can have these fancy topographical maps and put a point there and be like, well, that's where we know we want to go. Hopefully this piece of technology can get us there as long as the cloud cover doesn't block satellites and that sort of thing. But I had an interesting experience recently on one of my more recent field trips, uh, field seasons, to uh, this mountain called Mount Larimojong in central Sulawesi. And we got up to one of these peaks they call Punchaks. And immediately upon getting up there, some of the guides we were with and the local Indonesians we were working with immediately busted out their cell phones. And what I realized is we were so high up, we were getting signal from cell towers like many, many miles away into the cities. And they started immediately Facebooking that they're up on the, on the Punchak. <laughs> um, and so that seemed, that kind of pulled me out of the classic sense of where these exploring biologists, because then you turn around and everybody's on Facebook and posting <laughs> Facebook photos from, from the top of this remote peak where you can't see any, any sign of humans at all. It's just forest and birds I've never heard before. And then they're Facebooking. So, I mean... <laughs> I think the cell phone, like the cell towers and things like that have really kind of <laughs> changed that aspect of it. Yeah. And so. and are you, so are you guys actually trapping specimens? Are you bringing them back to the museum to study? What, what are you doing out there? Uh, so while we're actually out in the field, our main objective is to basically, right now we're doing these biotic surveys of these mountains. We're doing all of the mountains we can in Sulawesi. And so while we're out there, we're on this just, death march to get as many specimens as we can. So we're out there uh, trying to get genetic samples uh, for birds is what I'm working on. But I work on a big team. So there's also herpetologists who are collecting amphibians and reptiles. There are mammologists. 
studying the mammals. There are entomologists studying the insects and spiders as well. So you have a huge, there's even fish people. So are they all from Berkeley or are they coming from different institutions? This new group I'm working with, they're from all over the world. So it, probably more than half of them are from Indonesia because we like to work with Indonesia because it's their country. And uh, we work with Australians. Uh, some are from Berkeley. We had a German, I believe. <laughs> so it's a very large collaborative research team. Um, which is great and uh, really enriching, but can also, you can imagine, has logistical issues of wrangling that many people. Um, you have people from all walks of life, the porters who have never left their village to people like us at Berkeley who have you know, had the fortunate advantages of traveling all over the world and doing all these things, but yeah. But so, uh, which, uh, do you have one kind of bird you're looking at? You said survey, so maybe you're just looking at all the birds or... Uh... Right. So um, we're in forests, so we're on mountains, and so I would say we study forest birds. But in general, yeah, we are very pretty much interested in getting any, getting all the birds. So we are not only are we we're catching them, so we physically catch them, which is an interesting process in itself. We use what are called mist nets. <laughs> so we have these really long nets. They're about 12 meters long, maybe 2 meters high. And you st- we cut down bamboo <laughs> and use them as poles. And you stretch these nets between these bamboo poles. And they're called mist nets because they're so thin uh, that you can't really see them. Even humans, you know, you'll run into them if you forget where you put a net. And so the birds don't see them either. And you put them in strategic parts of the forest and hope that you're going to have birds flying through that area. And then when a bird hits it, they kind of they hit the net. And then they tumble down into these little pockets where they just sort of rest because they've they can't fly anymore, and so they just sit there. And then you can come out, pull them out, and then take measurements, take blood, whatever you need um, to get morphology and genetic samples from them. And and so we do that for as many different birds as we can. I have certain ones that I focus on, um, and I work with my advisor, Rory Bowie, who's also an ornithologist in the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology. And, and in general, we're just interested in everything because what we're trying to do is get an idea of what's even out there because – in general, Indonesia is, is relatively unexplored compared to a lot of the other tropical regions of the Earth. And so we go out and we find unique morphs, like different versions of things we haven't seen in the books and things like that. And so we're just trying to catch everything to see what's out there. So you kind of almost <clears throat> answered this question, but I'll ask it anyway. It's, uh just for like the general person, why Indonesia? Like why would we care about the birds in Indonesia? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I have several answers to that. The The first is that it's a series of islands. So as an island biogeographer and someone interested in that sort of rapid evolution, islands are perfect for that sort of study. But also, I've done a lot of conservation biology before I came to Berkeley. And so I'm very interested in that and motivated by conservation and preserving natural areas. And having worked in South America... There's a still quite a bit of rainforest there, and while it's definitely not safe and it's under threat and under siege like every other part of the world, the Indonesian tropics and Southeast Asian tropics in general are disappearing faster than any other part of the world. And so for me, I was very motivated to start working in Indonesia because I wasn't sure it was going to be there in the next 10 years. And so that was a big motivation. And it also had the island systems. So for me, it kind of, it was, I got to double dip. I got to 
I get to do the sort of conservation side of my interests, and I also get to do this island biogeography side of things and look at radiations and diversification of birds, and it was the perfect place to do both of those sort of things. Um, but yeah, it's a very you, we can go back to a field site and it won't exist anymore because it's been it's been cut down. So it's just going very quickly and it's kind of ignored internationally. And so that was a big motivation for me to get out there and Berkeley uh, has some people out there, and it was a great place to come to do that. So, so this is another easy softball. But do, so birds are they? Is this is conservation of birds something we need to think about? Can't they just fly somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> I, I told you it was a softball. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. I mean, uh, we should be concerned because the the reason a big part of why we're out there in Indonesia is you get it's a huge level of endemicity, so organisms that are only found in a specific region. And Sulawesi, where I'm currently working, actually, other than the Philippines, is the most has the most endemic birds probably of any part of the tropical any part of the world and so and among the island there'll be different peninsulas that have unique species that are only found on that peninsula and so it's very quickly it's quick to just lose things off they just blink out of existence very quickly because they're only found there they're already reduced to these parts of islands they're not even across the entire island so very quickly we can just lose an entire species that will just blink off the face of the earth and um and there's a lot of reasons to preserve uh, birds and different animals in general. We see these sort of ecological collapse things happen when you start removing things from a system that's very intricate and connected. And that is definitely the case in Indonesia as well. So, Okay, so I'm, I'll amp it up in terms of difficulty. Mm-hmm. So playing devil's advocate on that, there's probably quite a few people in the United States who have only ever seen, what, a seagull, mm-hmm. a pigeon, and maybe some hawks or something. So why should they care about how many different birds there are? Like, what does it matter to us that there are lots of different kinds of birds, or if there aren't? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's getting more, it's getting tougher. I know. Yeah, I know. And that's a legitimate question that, as scientists, we all need to address: is what, why should we be doing anything that we're doing? <laughs> you know, and it's it's very important because every species is playing some role in the environment. So, a group of thrushes, for example, they're frugivorous. They're they're eating all these berries and things like that. So the island thrush, something I was looking at, is distributing a lot of the fruiting trees and uh, bushes and shrubs in the forest. And without that, you lose that distribution, and then none of those things grow. And we've seen this actually in mammals in Southeast Asia, where you lose a large mammal that no longer exists there, and they were the dispersers of some huge fruit or something like that. And so now you have trees actually in the Southeast Asian tropics that they call the standing dead because they no longer have they're ancient dispersers. There's mammals that are now extinct, things like that. And so it's important to think about that. And, I mean, the, these rainforests and these forests we work in are pumping oxygen into the, into the, into all over Earth. And they're absorbing all these, this carbon. And they're, they're doing all these ecological services, we call them, for us. And uh, without them, we're, you know... We're going to live on a, a worse version of Earth for sure. So it's very important. And birds are great poster children for, you know, a big thing like a hornbill is, is pretty uh, attractive and you can get a lot of attention around there. And they allow you to kind of rally a common public around this sort of character or charismatic species that's very attractive and flashy. And again, very important for like, they're called architects of the forest because again, they're distributing large seeds all over the forest and actually allowing there to be contiguous forests are these like large birds and things like that. And so as we lose them, 
we lose the forest and they get more fragmented. And as they get more fragmented, they just sort of wither away and die from the outside in. And so, and we've seen that in process during our field seasons of forests we went to that were once intact. And when we got there for our field season, they are now fragmented and there's still large hornbills and even macaques, these large monkeys, primates living in there, but they have nowhere to go and they won't be there probably the next time we go there. And so while you, you know, we might not care over here, we should because we're still getting the air from the tropical rainforest of Indonesia. And if you just want your kid to ever be able to go out and see some of these wild, crazy places, if we don't preserve them, they won't be there. Um, and and to make the hornbill even more charismatic, I am correct in thinking that that's the same bird that's in the Lion King, it right? Is, Zazu. Yeah. Zazu is, is a, a horn- hornbill. <laughs> okay. a poorly illustrated hornbill, but yeah. But a hornbill nonetheless. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we're actually, um, we're out of time here on The Graduates, but I want to make sure that if you have any last words for the audience, anything that we didn't cover, now's your chance. Well, I would have to just say that be cognizant of regions that you're not familiar with. Indonesia is a very special place, and it's disappearing faster than anywhere else in the world. And um, I just like to encourage even just reading the news about it and starting to get more aware of what's happening in the world and the Sumatran fires, which we've maybe heard about. That's one of the only things that gets news is actually like pollutes China and the rest of the earth. And um, so it's really important these far-flung places are actually influencing us over here, even in America, and just keeping the idea that these tropics, while they're distant and they seem foreign, they're all also providing our air we breathe, and the, the more of them there are, the better. And there's still things to discover out there and services they provide that we don't even know yet. And so I think it's really important to keep uh, fighting for the for the tropical rainforest in general. Yeah, and this is something <laughs> I've talked about with students, you know, the idea of air quality, because we try and, you know, we like to think that as the United States, you know, what, how, our involvement in climate in, in climate talks or any of these other aspects of conservation, we're like, oh, well, you worry about that, China. <laughs> but, I mean, the air goes all over yeah. the entire world. So we're all breathing the same air. We're, we're you know, the ocean is all connected. So right. these things definitely affect us right yeah okay well that's (laughs) it for us on the graduates you know uh we're trying to end on a good note but uh birds are cool even if you can't see what color they are they're cool (laughs) they're awesome (laughs) and you know i there's some natural spaces around here i see a lot of different kind of birds i can't i don't have a life list i can't tell the difference between a lot of them but um they're all fantastic (laughs) (laughs) i know right hawk seagull (laughs) pigeon It's a good beginning. Hummingbird. Lots of hummingbirds. You're great. Yeah. You can work from there. Okay. So this has been another episode of The Graduates here on KLX 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I've been joined by ornithologist and conservation biologist Luke Block from the Department of Integrative Biology and the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology here on campus. He's telling us about his work all around the world and most recently in Indonesia you know, focusing on birds, but also all of the other creatures that are there and just really understanding how diverse some of these areas are and what kind of threats they're under and just giving us a sense of what it's like to be a field biologist and how it's changed, but it hasn't changed that much. So uh, it's good to hear these classic stories, right? It really brings us to the islands and and hopefully I'll, I'll get to go to Sulawesi at some point. But uh, Thank you, Luke, for being here today. Thank you so much. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX, Berkeley.